everybody. This is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. <laughs> Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we talk stock investing. Indeed. Which isn't really stock investing, is it? It's not really stock investing. What we're is talking it? about buying pieces of businesses. Yes. That's what we're really doing. Other people do stock investing. So if you want to watch stock investing, you can go over and watch Jim Cramer on Mad Money in the US or tons and tons and tons of people talk about stock investing, which is, in my view, mostly a form of speculation, mm-hmm. um, hoping things go up and uh, following the market and doing all kinds of clever things. And sometimes it works. And But if you want to really make a lot of money in a long, long, over a long period of time and end up with a great retirement, what we're talking about here is something developed by a, a strategy developed by Ben Graham, who said, you know what? Really, it's not stock investing. It's buying a small piece of a business. And you need to look at it like a business, like you're actually going to own that thing. Small piece of a business. And that Mr. Market, who controls the prices of these businesses, the whole market controls the price, is a manic depressive. This is Ben Graham from back in 1930s. Mm-hmm. Is, is emotional and can get very emotionally out of whack in either direction of exuberant, in which case he'll pay ridiculous prices for your companies if you want to sell them, or depressed, in which case he will sell you wonderful companies at ridiculously low prices. And the whole key to investing in this strategy we call Rule One, which for Warren Buffett's, there's only one rule of investing, don't lose money. We focus on buying companies when they're cheap and selling them when they're expensive. And Mr. Market helps us do that. So that's what this is all about. You know what this reminds me of? Um, Hmm. I remember when we were promoting our book, Invested, and I was doing a ton of interviews. And somebody said to me, like, oh, so you don't um, you don't choose like I can't remember. What is it people do? Uh, They're like buying and selling or, you know, like there's some term for that. Anyway, this person said like. You're, so you like to pick stocks instead of doing that. And I just had this visceral reaction. like, And I was just like, no, I don't pick stocks. Like what a weird. And they were trying to say it in a nice way. Like, like Warren right. Buffett picks stocks right. to this person. And I just like had this really strong reaction of like, no, that's not at all. It's not what, obviously not what Buffett does, but it's not, I'm not picking stocks. Like, that's great. What's your, I'm curious what your reaction is to that. I I feel the same way. I read that term, you know, picking stocks. If somebody said it to me and that's what we do, I would be, I would object. I would say, no, it's not really what we do because it sounds like you're sort of speculating, you know, I'm going to pick this one and pick that one and hope they go up. Um, and I think the other I guess. option is diversification, right? You're just diversifying I think across maybe a ton that was, of stuff. Maybe that was the opposite of what they were trying to say. Yeah, there, oh, was, some, you there was something else. Like you don't diversify, you pick stocks. Or you don't yeah, buy you an index, stocks. you pick stocks. I think yeah, that was it. Stocks. It was roughly that context. And, and some people are going to say that with a certain derisive tone. Because no, no, but this was not derisive. Strong, right, true. But there is a strong argument out there. Uh, academically that that's not possible to quote pick stocks successfully um, because the academics have this theory that we've talked about for years uh, modern portfolio theory which is still somehow widely taught and is of course totally subscribed to by the regulators the Securities Exchange Commission um, will not even permit their advisors to offer 
a, the opportunity to their clients, this is crazy, they won't even let them offer, offer the opportunity to have a low-risk, high-return investment. The SEC <laughs> Dad, believes... That's just because you think it's low-risk, high-return. <laughs> well, I can prove it. It's oh, not okay, a theory. Sure. Oh, my God. That's the, This is exactly the problem that the modern portfolio theorists but here's, but had the, with Warren Buffett. I mean, Let we've me had this conversation. Because you just raised this whole issue here. Okay, go ahead. And this spectrum that it, uh, there's no such thing. It's Warren Buffett's portfolio has puzzled uh, puzzled academics for, for a long, 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 long time because he has this really enormous rate of return above the stock market and yet has a beta, which is the, the modern portfolio theory way of seeing how much risk you have in your portfolio. Mm-hmm, which- he has a beta that's lower than the market, which means his beta is lower, his risk, according to them, is lower than a broadly diversified mutual fund or an index. So in other words, if you say that the index risk is one, Buffett's risk is half of one or three quarters of one. And that doesn't compute. You can't have twice the return of the stock market, which is what Buffett has, not not twice the money, twice the compounded annual growth rate, which is bazillion times more money. Uh, big word, bazillion. And, yeah. and it can't happen, according to yeah. modern portfolio theory. So they okay. had to puzzle out why, and we've talked about why here before. Can I translate that a little bit into yes. uh, English? Yes. So. Beta, we actually did one or two episodes entirely on what beta is, but I will badly define it as volatility of price. And that's not actually strictly what it is, but it's um, they use the volatility of the price as a proxy for risk. And the reason they do that is that if you're somebody who's owning a share of stock for a week or a day or 10 minutes or one second, then that the amount that the price moves is probably going to matter a lot to you. And if you're mm, somebody who owns it for 10 years, the amount the price moves is probably not going to matter that much to you, which is the Buffett situation. And I completely agree with you that investing in Warren Buffett's portfolio is a low risk, high reward opportunity. <laughs> And that is why so many people have done so and have been highly recommended to do so by their investment advisors. And that is buying a share of Berkshire Hathaway. But, Uh, you know, ignoring, of course, the problem of price versus value. Ignoring, of course, the problem of price versus value. What does that mean? That means that the advice of a financial advisor to go buy Berkshire Hathaway to participate in Buffett's genius is only good advice if you're buying Berkshire at a reasonable price. Oh, yeah. If good you pay point. too much, Great it's point. stupid advice. But yeah. of course, the advisor who's telling you to do that does not have a concept of price being different than value. His concept is price and value are the same. And so he can always advise you to go buy Berkshire and feel like he's giving you good advice. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes it is good advice. Sometimes it isn't. But where I differ from this concept that like, oh, across the board, somebody who's choosing companies and buying them for the long term is going to be a better investment than diversification or the index or whatever else. Um, 
every single time. I I don't agree with that. I think it depends entirely on who the person is. I agree totally. So, but what you don't, maybe it's just a wording situation, but when you say like, oh, this strategy is so much better than other ones, it's, yes, this is the strategy, but wielded by somebody who is good at it. It's like saying like, somebody who's a neurosurgeon, yes, like, brain surgery is important in many situations, but wielded by a terrible neurosurgeon is most likely going to kill you and wielded by an incredible neurosurgeon is most likely, well, you know, depending on the situation, right? right? But you guys get it. Most likely going to save you. Taking your metaphor the next step. Yes. Well, I guess the way I'm thinking of is that if you do this and you do what we're talking about, then you're sort of like a board certified neurosurgeon. You, yeah, basically. You have, yeah, I yeah. feel like a board certified neurosurgeon most of the time. <laughs> in fact, one of my great sadnesses in life, which you never know what what could happen. I've got a lot of life left. That was is that <laughs> I'm not called doctor. I really want to be called doctor. <laughs> All right, you guys have to understand that. She has a doctor of jurisprudence degree I know. and wants to be called doctor. And I was telling oh, Nuno no. my sadness at not being called doctor. And he was oh. like, you have a doctorate technically. Yes. yes. But the problem is nobody calls JD's doctor. We're esquires. No. And it's nobody calls me an esquire. So it's pointless. Nobody calls you an esquire. So you don't get any real There's no joy. benefit. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a friend well, perhaps, who's a lawyer. Perhaps in terms of calling ourselves neurosurgeons, board certified neurosurgeons, we took it a step too far. Yeah, I'll buy that. All I, have right, a, I have bad. a lawyer friend who, after he graduated, I won't say who this is, but everybody who knows him will know, um, put Esquire in his email address, his like personal email oh, outstanding esq <laughs> yeah that's what it is esq and i was kind of yep. like that is simultaneously the lamest thing i've ever heard and also i'm a little bit jealous and kind of <laughs> <laughs> right exactly i get it i get it well obviously the, the really the thing that we're both probably laughing at you guys is that when we compare ourselves to board certified neurosurgeons by using what really amounts to a pretty straight up easy investing strategy we're really overstepping uh reality substantially we're we're not that smart no and but i disagree i do think there's something you think really, really smart i think you're really smart yeah oh, oh, oh why would i spend you. all this time talking to you if you weren't really smart silly I, I i think there's a difference between being really smart and having a lot of experience yeah there's a difference there but go. Both things are important. I guess. Um, I, I mean, it really, I find that Buffett's saying that if, you know, really a, a 160 IQ gets in the way of good investing more more than it helps. I, The more that I read about investing and practice investing, the more I agree with that. Because I yeah. need to like, oh, this makes me sound like I'm saying that I'm smart. So I'm going to take this no, back. You can just Never really mind. overthink this thing. That's what I was going to say. Overthink I overthink it. it way too much. You can, you can come up with every reason not to do something and because you're super smart and can look into it. 
and you, you paralyze yourself by analysis, right? Paralysis yeah. by analysis. Yeah. Uh, oh, when, so you've met me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we all do it, honey. It's really, really easy to, you should see when three or four of us get together in the room doing an analysis. Oh, I, we I can, have been in that we can, situation. We can get really into it. Um, yep. But at the end of the day, that problem usually occurs because we're trying to do something that's too hard. It just, the company's just too hard. We're stretching and particularly this last five years has just been a sort of rule one nightmare, if you will, given the market continually being pushed up by market interaction from the Federal Reserve uh, in the U.S., the printing of massive amounts of dollars by the Fed and and deficit spending to the tune of trillions of dollars by the U.S. government has resulted in just a deluge of U.S. dollars around the world driving up all assets and uh, far beyond where they should be. Um, today, by comparison, the, the, the price of the stock market today is about two times um, U.S. GDP, the price of the U.S. stock market. It's about 2x U.S. GDP. And historically, meaning virtually the whole time Warren Buffett was an investor until recently, the last 20 years, or sorry, the last, not even 20, the last 10 years. So his entire investing career, the relationship between the price of the whole stock market and GDP was one to one mm -hmm. or less. Mm-hmm. And so here we are at a market that's, for whatever reason, pr principally just the overprinting of money, has been driven, for lack of better places to put the money, straight up to really 2x over historical rates. So this market can fall a long ways, I guess is what I'm saying. And it's very difficult to be my kind of an investor, your kind of an investor, Warren Buffett's kind of an investor, safely. You, you have to really stay disciplined in this market. And you can see it in Buffett's portfolio. I mean, he's really bought like three companies in the last three years. That's it's like it. big time bought. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the rest of the portfolio is being driven by Ted and Todd who are running 10 billion each out of a $300 billion portfolio. Now, one so. of them, though, isn't investing anymore. I can't remember oh, which really? one. Shoot. Not keeping up with it. Yeah. He moved to manage one of the companies. Oh, and I, of course, am blanking on which one and which company right now. But interesting. Yeah, he's in operations now. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's Buffett right now is sitting on one hundred and forty two billion dollars, which is right at the world record he's ever had. And that record only happened in the last three or four years. So he's been at one hundred and forty billion, then down to one hundred billion when he bought Apple and she and Chevron and Oxy and then back up again as cash flow comes in. So. He's sitting on a ton of money. I'm just to make that relative comparison. Ten years ago, having twenty to forty billion was max, and now he's at one hundred and forty billion. You so mean it's just in saying max cash? Max cash. So it's just very difficult for the best investor in the world to find something to own. And I mean, I, I, granted, Buffett does say that if he only had a million dollars to invest, he'd be making fifty percent a year. But that's a genius. Okay, so I'm, I can't do that. <laughs> it's tough. I mean, it really is tough. It's, so it's do you hard think to. I interrupted you. Go ahead. Well, it's hard to hard to for me. It's hard to both have a lot of cash available to buy if things crater. And at the same time, keep up with the market. Right. That's those two things are hard to do. So if we're using half 
half of the cash, we, if, if we're using half of the assets we have, holding the other half in, in government bonds, um, we really have to have the half we're investing in companies do twice as good as the market in order to keep up with the market. I'm more, lost more because it never, ever has keeping up with the market been a goal. Well, that's I, this is the first really time I've point. ever heard you talk about that. You've I always said, that like, who cares? I've ever talked about it. Right. Okay. Well, I'll take a deep breath here and yeah. put the truck in reverse. Maybe and this say, is a good, yeah, like, you're, reset. You're 100% right. You've, I have a wondered. little bit of that financial news has made its way into your brain because. No, I have. You're right. I've inadvertently wandered into institutional imperative land. Maybe. Ooh. Oh, my goodness. Institutional imperative, guys, is where a fund manager feels the pressure from his investors to do something wonderful with their money mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Buffett talks about it like people in the stands yelling at him, swing you bum. Mm-hmm. And I, I hypothesize, I've never seen this in print, but I hypothesize that Buffett closed down the Buffett partnerships in the 1960s. He had five or six of them. He closed them all down, took his winnings out of those partnerships and bought Berkshire Hathaway stock so that he no longer had to listen to people yelling, swing you bum. You mean he turned his Berkshire Hathaway stock into or his ownership into a company through which he made investments? Right. So it, it took him out of the land of explaining himself to limited partners and trying to keep up with his otherwise insane levels of returns. Like he was, by the time he quit the partnerships, he was knocking out 36% a year. And if he didn't do it, people would take their money away. Well, like, oh, he's no longer, he's lost his touch. So, didn't he? I, think he, I mean, I'm trying to remember now, but isn't there a letter from one of his annual letters to his investors from right either when he closed down or? or later where he where he says i don't think these coming years are going to be a situation in which i can make returns that are not exactly profitable but like profitable enough for my investors he says something like that i swear i think you're right i think you're right and and basically was like i'm gonna sit this out you know, mm-hmm. here's your money back. Have a good life, mm-hmm. and maybe, maybe I'll start up again when the situation is better. Yeah, he, he really then, did say that. He yeah. actually said, "Here's your money back. Have a good life." Or um, I would recommend, if you want to put it in a mutual fund, to That's put right. it in with uh, who was that Sequoia, and um, who's they were just starting out and did real well. Buffett style investors, some other um, investment fund. Yeah, not the mute, Se- not the venture capital. No, the the, I think it's Sequoia, but I could be wrong. And I then, feel like this um, whole episode is just us being like, I can't remember the name of that thing. Oh well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You guys will um, find it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm thinking. Oh, and the other thing you said to do is, oh, you or you could buy stock in this company, Berkshire Hathaway. Later, though, he hadn't he hadn't done that yet. What what when he closed down the partnerships? Yeah, I think he gave him those three choices. Oh really? Oh yeah. Yeah, I said, go on, on your own, good luck, or Sequoia, or Berkshire. I'm going to start I'm buying some money. companies under the umbrella of Berkshire. Interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, basically, if you made that choice, you did actually pretty well with Sequoia. I think I think they averaged about 18% for the next 30 years. It did really well, actually. 
but Buffett averaged 24% for the next 30 years, and the difference was, geez, for huge millions of dollars difference. So here's my question. Hmm. Do you think, I'm debating if I should give context to this, but I'll just go ahead. Do you think Buffett thinks that he picks stocks? No, no, I think he buys companies. I think that's what yeah, he thinks. I think so too. I think he thinks he buys companies, yeah. But Stock at the picking same just time, feels like a like a like you're getting pieces of paper, a la Jim Cramer, who says, you know, stocks are pieces of paper. Don't get all mm-hmm. caught up in the moral quality of the piece of paper. It's just a piece of paper. So Jim, Jim, I like Jim a lot. Actually, we've met. He runs well, a great and show, part of that, so I don't watch him, but part of that is like you can sell it any time. Don't get sucked right. into it. You're not right. attached. Don't, sell don't it be if making you don't like moral it. judgments here. This is not moral morality issues. These are. Public companies, if you want to buy a smoking company, it's not a smoking company. It's a piece of paper, Altria. And right. if you want to have a railroad train company, it's not a railroad. It's a piece of paper, right? So that, and I, and Jim very famously got into it when um, when there was this battle between a couple of major hedge fund guys over a company that was doing multi-level. And uh, one thought multi-level is heinous and a pyramid scheme and really takes advantage of poor people. And the other thought, it's just a company and they're doing fine and I'm going to buy it. And uh, so it it turned in. It, so Kramer got on the air and was just was like this. Was this like this a is, David Einhorn? Uh, I won't, I'm not going to mention names here. You I guys can it, figure it out later. Oh, but my God. It, this it's basically driving me crazy. I have to look things up now. Oh, we can't no. just not remember anything. Well, what, what I. Do you remember the name it, of the company or just don't want to yes, say it? Yes, I do. I'm not going to say it. Why can't so, you say the name of the company? I just don't want to stir it all up again. It's, you know, Kramer basically said, and what, here's my point. Kramer basically said okay. there's no place in investing for this sort of more moral, you know, the moral code. Why, why are you moralizing about this company? Okay, I'll tell you who it is. No, I won't. <laughs> I'm literally I'm trying to Google it. it right now. Okay, you go Google away. Well, I continue uh, this to seems do like a ridiculous podcast. hidden thing. Herbal life. Here it is. Herbal life. Yes. <laughs> Why is that something <laughs> secret? <laughs> Just I didn't want to stir it. Well, because I'm sure there's people on the podcast who are listening who think herbal life is great and that they're making money on it, uh, doing herbal life distributorships. And, you know, I I just got a little bit of an issue with with multi-level. It's just there's something about it that's sort of smarmy. I don't know what exactly. Do you? Yeah, I'll tell you what it is. Okay. Is that the people in the beginning make money off of all the people at the end not being able to sell the stuff that they've bought into? Well, that's as concise a summary of the problem with multi-level as I've ever heard. Yeah, it's crap. I mean, it's good for the early people. Well, it's good early. Yeah. As you build, and there's lots of product out there that you can sell everybody, but at the end of the day, a lot of product ends up in somebody's garage. Right, which they had to purchase. It's not like those people are sent the product for free. If they were sent the product for free, it wouldn't be a problem. It's because they have to purchase that product that then they can't sell. Right, exactly. From said multi-level company. Yeah, Um, so uh, by the way, that reminds me of a huge difference between a multi-level company where they force the distributors to purchase the product and um, a typical company that (laughs) forces the distributors to purchase the product. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my god 
But the distributors yeah, are, uh, oh, you know, see earlier episode are like Walmart and Target. Honey, when you were little, I'm laughing because when you were little, um, I don't remember, know if you remember this. I mean, you were really little. But I had invested in a company, built, helped, helped them build this company and then sold the company. And the company was sold to a public company called Frame Technologies. And then the value of the stock that I got from our piece of the investment turned to nothing. Like it went from 25 million down to about $2 million. It just disappeared because the, (laughs) the CEO of frame technologies whole sales department forced distributors to buy product in the fourth quarter of a year in order to make their numbers. They're publicly. Oh, I didn't know that part. Yeah, the, the public numbers that they had said that they would do in, in the estimates and analysts were out there saying, okay, these guys will probably do this. In order to make those numbers, they forced the distributors to buy all these boxes of frame technology stuff. And in the th- first quarter of the next year, the salesman couldn't sell anybody anything because they had their shelves loaded with these boxes. They couldn't get rid of them. So, I mean, they were selling to the retail, but they didn't want to buy any more. And Mm -hmm. so the numbers projected for the first quarter weren't missed by a little bit. They were missed by a million miles. And the problem was the CEO didn't tell anybody until like the last couple days of the quarter. He didn't tell any of the analysts that we're going to miss our numbers when they knew it all the time. Mm -hmm. And so when they missed them, the stock price went from $17 a share overnight to six. Like just crushed. Mm -hmm. And then this guy got fired and all of his VPs got fired, and then the director levels got fired, and the venture capitalists who were in there just cleaned house, and with it went the value of, I mean, the stock just kept coming down, and finally the company just went away. So basically, and every investor's absolute nightmare. Company going along, fine, all indications of any information anybody can get, Yeah. all fine, Yep. and then turns out, that information is wrong. Yep. That's the, that's the nightmare. And it is, that's why it's so important that we have CEOs who have integrity. I mean, that's just critical. And that is the weakest link in the chain. In my view, Mm. that's the place I've gotten burned when I've rarely gotten, got taken losses in this strategy. Rarely. But when it happens, it happens because the executives are liars. And Looking back, be, there's a place in hell reserved for these bastards. Looking back, you. were there? Is there anything you took away as as like, oh, that was a red flag. That was a sign that I look for. Yeah, they in that in the cases that I know that that happened to me, the warnings were there, and what I were ignored they? them. I got into I got into confirmation bias. The number one warning was they were increasing their debt. Ah. And I didn't see it because it was so short term and it was construction debt. So I was I was persuaded by this, the executives that this was very short term and covered by plenty of equity, which it was. But construction debt, like they were building something? Yeah, they were they were building a new plant. And that's okay. the other thing is that I am now allergic. But how to is that a red building. flag? That seems relatively reasonable. Doesn't it? Doesn't yeah. it? Right. So how is that a red flag? Um, because 
what when they're not on because they weren't on plan for for delivering the construction. Oh, okay. They as soon as they weren't on plan, I should have been boops, big red flag. Is that because you think they were using the funds in other areas? No, I think they're having trouble that they weren't disclosing technological trouble. Okay. Building the plant. And, uh, and they weren't disclosing that. So they just were like, we've had some construction delays because, you know, the shipment of steel or whatever. And they were just making up BS okay. and lying about it. And, um, and then what happens is these things, it's a little bit like the problems people have in an airplane. When, when someone crashes mm-hmm. an airplane, it is almost always because they get caught up in an issue and forget to fly the plane mm-hmm. and lose track of the other issues. And that's kind of exactly what's happening here. These executives got caught up in an issue and then they forgot to fly the plane. And what happened is they got the, they had a loan, a small loan, 400 million in a multi-billion dollar company, $400 million, sorry, sorry, $40 million to an Australian lender that was backed by the price of zinc. Wait, this is a different company. No, this is the same company. This is the same company. So it was backed by the price but of zinc. You've had two companies one. that related to the price of zinc? No, 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 no. Just one. This is I'm just giving you one example here. We're still on frame technologies, confused. right? Huh? Frame technologies. No, no. Then we're talking about a whole different company. Oh my gosh. Okay. Sorry, I shifted gears on you. I didn't Wow. Yeah. Such a bad transition, but it was. Wait a, a second. At what point did we move from Frame Technologies to, are we saying the name of the other company? Yeah, Horsehead. Okay, so at what point did you move from that, from the first one to the second one? <laughs> Some, somewhere in there. Yeah. <laughs> somewhere in there. Um, when I was talking about red flags. Yeah, red flags, because then you said that they had construction debt, and I was like, that's a weird oh, thing. Was that about Frame Technologies? No. If we edited, it, terrible, we could delete it? this, but we're not going to because we that's, don't edit. That's a bad transition. Sorry, everybody. That's probably confusing to everyone. But what but I want to... Okay. Red flags on frame technologies would be much, much harder. That's what I'm asking. Yes. Much yes, harder. exactly. So I was giving you my easy one where I should have seen that. And now let's go back over to frame technologies. Okay. What could I have done on hindsight, right? Call a distributor. I'm drinking my water, but yes, exactly. Just check in, check in with a distributor, and they would have been happy to tell me. Nah, we we got a ton of this stuff from the. Why would quarter. anybody ever do that? Like, what was was there any indication that this was happening in any way that they were getting the distributors to buy? Stuff? Right, good question. So this is a job for board members. This is what a board member should be doing. A board member should be verifying what they're hearing from the CEO. Otherwise, uh, any CEO could get away with anything, right? But board members yeah. don't do that. Therefore, so, so the theory of investing in public companies is that you have a board of directors who represent you, the owner of the company, when in fact, in reality, they do not. They're cronies of, many of them are okay. cronies of the CEO. Great. And that leaves, I'm, 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 hold on, I'm coming back to it. Okay. And that means that you don't really have anybody watching out for your investment. That should be. You have to do it yourself. And that means you have to act like an owner of a small business who's checking on the CEO mm-hmm. to make sure that they're actually doing things right. So you just got a few key performance indicators, KPIs, that you need to know about that particular industry in order to be an owner in the industry. You don't want to be somebody that doesn't understand 
what important numbers you have to be watching. So obviously one important number would be, okay, how are earnings? Another one is cash flow. But there are other things in industries that are important. For example, are the distributors moving product? And mm -hmm. if not, then you're going to have a problem. And you could be ahead of that problem, months ahead of that problem, if you're checking with the distributors of the business that you own. So there's things you should be doing. For example, if you own Urban Outfitters, you remember Urban Outfitters? Sure. That's one of the first investments I did based on you guys. Because mm -hmm. we, we were in L.A. and you were looking at Urban Outfitters and they had this line coming all the way through the store. I don't even remember that. But it's like, damn, you guys were like, oh, we're standing in line for this. It's going to be awesome. And I'm like, we stood in line guys? at Urban Outfitters. Yeah. In the in the in the Flower Mall and uh, near the Beverly Center. Yeah. L.A. I do not remember that. That's oh, funny. yeah. So I'm like, wow, this is an interesting investment. So if I own Urban Outfitters. Don't you think it would behoove me to drop into an Urban Outfitters once in a while? Yeah. Yeah. Pay attention. Well, if I dropped into an Urban Outfitters, let's say in 2014 or something, I might have seen an empty store. Nobody there. Sure. You see what I mean? And I do, and but I'm missing how, like, as somebody who was actively in negotiations with Frame Technologies what were the flags like okay you're saying like i could do diligence better yeah but was there any sign was there any like number that was a little off was there something anything that as an nothing, investor we can nothing. look for because you're getting quarterly numbers and they were good okay at the end of the fourth quarter and you don't have the first quarter numbers yet so in that three-month period the whole thing went to crap I mean, that is just insane. Isn't that so scary? Even in hindsight, nothing to look back on. No. The CEO is lying. Everybody's <sighs> lying. Gosh. Yeah. Which makes me very skeptical of, of Silicon Valley uh, investments because those guys will lie their butts off if they feel like their jobs are in jeopardy. Well, that was... Um, number one. And number two... Um, it was still, Frame was still a, a company that was growing. It had only been public for about a year or two. Yes, that was and my next that, comment. So you wouldn't have been invested in them and neither would I. Right, and so for a small company, it is possible to have a shift that quickly, but for a huge company, I, I, I'm not sure it is possible Much. to have a shift that quickly without right. any sort of indication in financials coming out like it's it's very hard to slow a gigantic aircraft carrier and it's right. really easy to stop a rowboat oh yeah good point yeah so that then that's the beauty but of that's frame not to say like is it, the giant companies haven't hid you know horrific and, and numbers by the way the just past. just so everybody understands back in those days i was doing some substantial amount of venture capital and mezzanine financing. So I was mm -hmm. doing a lot of other kinds of investing than what we're calling rule one investing. Mm -hmm. Much more aggressive, much more early stage stuff. Well, should we wrap this up with an indication to what we were actually going to talk about today? Because that's kind <laughs> of a good segue. How did we end up clear over here? I have I no know, idea. But, but we, fun. next time, are going to talk about penny stocks. So 
which is kind of actually appropriate given I'm just talking about more aggressive early stage. Ah, welcome to the penny stock market where you can get aggressive early stage companies that are actually public and you can buy into them. And we'll talk about that next time. Yeah, it should be like subtitle, terrifying or terrifying. <laughs> it's all in the inflection. That's okay. Right. Cool. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Time to go play. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding. They really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it's really important. It's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it. <laughs>